Welcome to a new podcast series from the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, the theme of this podcast series is deliberating on the constitutional future. My name is Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast, and I'll be chairing the discussion. The focus of the episode is on the economic implications and consequences of potential constitutional change on the island of Ireland. I'm really delighted today to be joined by leading commentators on the current discussions. John Doyle is Director of Dublin City University's Institute for International Conflict Resolution and Reconstruction and Professor of International Conflict Resolution at DCU School of Law and Government. Adele Bergen is an Associate Research Professor at the Economic and Social Research Institute Dublin, ESRI, and an adjunct professor in the Department of Economics, Trinity College Dublin. Seamus McGuinness is a research professor and the research area coordinator for labour market research at the ESRI and adjunct professor in the Department of Economics, Trinity College Dublin. I could go on and on and on explaining the background to our contributors today. It was absolutely clear they are excellently well placed to contribute to the discussion. All have made a significant expert contribution to ongoing post-Brexit conversations about the socio-economic future of the island of Ireland and are really all central to the current academic and scholarly debate about where this debate is at now and where it might be going next. So I'm delighted that you could all join us for the episode today and I'm going to start by asking each of you to provide a brief outline of your ongoing work as it relates specifically to the subject we're discussing. So I'm going to start with Adele. Okay, good, good morning, Colin. Thanks very much for, for the invite uh, to take part in this podcast. Um, I suppose the, the background to our work is that there's been uh, more focus on North-South issues following the Brexit referendum, uh, the establishment of the Shared Island Initiative, and the um, issue of constitutional change. So Seamus and I have published a couple of papers um, in this area. Um, I suppose it has to be said at the outset that future constitutional change is a very complex and a very contentious issue. Um, and one of the things that we've argued is that there's a real need for an evidence-based approach to any debate. So um, in, in our first paper in the Cambridge Journal of Economics, that examines some of the key themes relevant for the debate. So we start off by asking or by trying to understand how income levels pair in Northern Ireland relative to GB and the Republic. And we find that uh, the North performs relatively poorly compared to both Great Britain and, and the Republic. And, and this is due to, to lower levels of productivity in, in the North. Um, so, so the next question, I suppose, is around what might be driving uh, uh, lower productivity. And uh, it's, it's likely to be driven by a number of factors, including uh, lower educational attainment and lower levels of export orientation and, and lower intensity and, and poor quality uh, foreign direct investment. Um, we also compared the, the health systems north and south and, and discussed uh, subvention. Um, and then we have a, a second paper 
published in the um, Irish Studies in International Affairs as part of the Arons Project, analysing and researching Ireland, North and South, that I think we're all involved in. Um, and, and in that paper, we uh, comprehensively explore differences in living standards, North and South, uh, across a wide number of dimensions, not just the traditionally used economic measures, but we also examine um, opportunities for, for life progression and, and general well-being, um, I suppose, in an, in an attempt to build a more complete picture. Um, and I suppose from that study, our, our main finding is that across all of the metrics and, and indicators that we examine, that differences in, in living standards generally favour the, the republic. So one reliable measure of living standards is, is household disposable income. So that's after tax income, basically the, the, the money you have in your back pocket. Um, and then when you're comparing this across jurisdictions, you have to take account for differences in price levels, with the cost of, of the different costs of buying similar goods and services. So using this measure, we find in 2017 that that household disposable income is around 12% higher in the Republic compared to, to Northern Ireland. Uh, so it's a sizable gap in, in living standards. I suppose just um, a couple of final introductory comments. I guess any metric that you look at or indicator has, has weaknesses and, and drawbacks and can be criticised or maybe uh, isn't very well understood. Um, so one of the things that, that we, we feel is that one very good measure of overall differences in um, general welfare and living standards across countries is captured in life expectancy. So uh, in, in 2018, life expectancy at, at birth in, in the Republic exceeded that of, of Northern Ireland by, by um, 1.4 uh, years. So we don't really know what's driving this. We know that a, a range of factors around income and education and employment opportunities will all together determine life expectancy. But I think it's a, a useful measure that I think everyone kind of easily understands uh, for, for comparing uh, living standards. So I'll let Seamus add in anything that I've forgotten. Yeah, thank you, Adele. Seamus? I think that's pretty comprehensive. And again, Colin, thank you very much for for the invite. I suppose the only thing that I would add is that um, in terms of where the research is going now and, and, and other things that we, we want to look at and have begun to look at, uh, we're also involved in the Shared Island Initiative uh, research within the Institute. So Adele and myself and uh, other colleagues will be our, have began a study looking at um, North-South differences in educational attainment, which is part of that uh, productivity uh, story. Um, and there are other colleagues looking at other issues that are relevant to, to the analysis. There's a study ongoing looking at um, the, um, the, the, the impact of services trade and, and how that looks after Brexit. There's another study um, looking at uh, foreign direct investment, North and South. There's another study looking at primary healthcare, North and South, and that comparison. And that's all important to, to understanding those differences uh, in, in terms of cross-border uh, dynamics and, and levels is, is an important aspect in terms of understanding um, the gaps that we see in income levels and productivity. And, and hopefully in the future, Adele and I are planning to, to now uh, begin another paper uh, on formally um, looking at, at differences in productivity levels at sectoral level, north and south, uh, and trying then to model those differences uh, for both jurisdictions. Um, 
and compare and, and contrast. So, so that's where we hope to be going um, next. Thank you, Seamus. That's great. John? Uh, Colin, just to uh, start by uh, saying thanks for, for the invitation to take part this morning. Uh, it's a really useful contribution to, to public debate and glad to be able to take part in it. Uh, my own work, uh, mainly with Professor Arlene Connolly in Dublin City University, really from about 2016 onwards, has almost exclusively focused uh, over that period on the impact of Brexit on North South relations, on the peace process. Uh, and over that time, the ongoing negotiations between the UK and the European Union, how that was going to impact on the island of Ireland. Um, probably about seven or eight papers over that time, focusing on different aspects uh, of that unfolding dynamic. And what was fairly clear through all of that is that the debate has changed. You probably wouldn't be have thought of doing this podcast in 2010. Uh, it wouldn't have seemed timely. The, the public debate wouldn't have been happening. But it's, the, the change from 2016, 2017 onwards has been immense. And debates that probably we all thought were a generation away in terms of a practical um, completion of what's set out in the Good Friday Agreement of, of a ref, referendum north and south on potential for Irish unity uh, was unlikely to happen for a while. Or if it was called, the majority didn't seem to be there up to the Brexit referendum. But in some ways, it's changed the question. Uh, for some people, the question is now about rejoining the European Union. For others, the economic situation we're talking about this morning has drastically changed with the UK's withdrawal. Uh, questions of identity as well. A lot of people for whom uh, the union represented an, an outward-looking, more metropolitan, soft unionism um, are, are, in some ways, they're not at all attracted by the sort of narrow English nationalism represented by the Rich Conservative Party. That, that was not their version of what UK unionism meant uh, up to this time. And obviously the South not only has changed in its own right, but, but strong support for the European Union has changed all those sorts of questions. So that's what I suppose drove our interest uh, in this issue. And, and the more we got into it, the more questions uh, were thrown up. Uh, in particular about the balance of opinion in Northern Ireland and those issues that might impact what's increasingly called the sort of middle ground in terms of the constitutional question. Um, you know, People who vote for the three traditional Ulster Unionist parties now represent about 350,000 people. They, they don't command uh, a majority uh, in Northern Ireland, certainly not the mythical one million. Um, and so if a referendum is called, uh, those people who don't have a strong committed link to, to either nationalist or Republican parties on one side or traditional unionist parties are likely to be decisive. Uh, and therefore, while they will have views for certain on political ideology and cultural nationalism, and you know, we know from opinion polls, some voters for the Green Party and the Alliance Party, for example, have very clear-cut views on the constitutional question. You know, they have other reasons for voting for those political parties. It's not a question of sitting on the fence. But for some, it's not a question of absolute commitment to either constitutional order. Um, they are, in some ways, your standard floating voter who are prepared to look at the evidence. And that's why there's never been a greater time. I mean, everyone I've spoken to, either informally or at uh, formal interviews for research purposes since 2016, has said the last thing we need on the island of Ireland is a Brexit-style referendum where people are asked to vote first and they'll be told the evidence and what the consequences are after they voted. Um, there really is people have a really strong need. And you can see that with the downloads of articles and podcasts on this topic. And there's a really strong desire for evidence-based sort of research to allow people to form their view. Um, some of that will focus on the health system. Seamus and Adele have mentioned work ongoing on that. There's certainly need for 
better understanding of public opinion. And I'm working with colleagues in sort of political science backgrounds on, on those sort of issues, the pros and cons of different sorts of political structures and federalism. But there's no doubt that the economy is a clear factor, in particular for floating voters, but also for voters who have a strong sense of how they'd probably vote, but they'd still like to know what the consequences of their gut feeling is. You know, is there a cost or a benefit? And there's been so little debate on that up to 2016 because it seems so far away. You know, there really isn't uh, the sort of comparative data, you know, the sort of research that Ellen Shame has been doing in, in the last couple of years. I mean, in some ways, it's it is groundbreaking, and in some ways, it's surprising on the island of Ireland that that you know simply comparing the living standards or the health systems or productivity on the two jurisdictions that share a small island has become so challenging because the two systems have constructed their definitions and data in such different ways and makes it really challenging for researchers who are doing the first round of work in particular, because not only do they have to do the analysis, they've obviously got to do the, the real donkey work to create reliable, comparable data that they can stand over a peer review process. And, and they've really done some you know, groundbreaking work there. And with my own contribution to that, what was clear in that sort of work of Rudin Brexit was one of the things that was stopping the debate on the economy was the one-liner, but there's a 13 billion subvention. So therefore, what's the point of even discussing it? It's, it's all impossible. It's all too big. It's too much. We couldn't possibly get through this transition in any normal period. We'd be bankrupt. We'd break the criteria in the European Treaty, European Union fiscal arrangements. Um, whatever about COVID blowing a hole in those anyway. Uh, it, it was a genuine fear. If there was a 13 billion subvention, then how could you possibly think about a short-term shift uh, to an all-earned economy that was sustainable and that could improve public services rather than uh, disimprove them? Um, and so that was the sort of most recent piece of work I did was looking at some of the uh, public accounting figures in the UK uh, and trying to, I suppose, explain to a more generalist audience when the British government publishes a figure of as it is now, 4.9 billion, that that's not in practice subsidy. It's an accounting exercise for a state, which is entirely legitimate, and all states do it, but it would not be the figure that United Ireland uh, would inherit on day one. That's a much more complex debate around how we want to tax and how we want to spend, and in some ways why the Northern economy has performed so poorly in recent years, particularly why productivity is so low, um, and why, uh, as James Neal pointed out, 27% of the working population rely on benefits to turn their low wages into a living income, um, you know, which is a really, I suppose, a shocking indictment of people who you know, work hard for a living and yet their, their, their wage levels don't actually sustain uh, even the basic level of standard, not much less an average one. So that's, I suppose, what's kept me busy over the last while. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, everyone. Really very helpful. And what we're going to be doing in the questions is really revisiting a number of the points that, that you've raised in the introduction. I want to start with a, a fairly general question around your sense of the current state of the economic debate, uh, both for and against constitutional change. I suppose the question I'm asking really to start is, is the debate currently in a good place? And if it isn't, why not? And maybe Seamus, you could share your reflections on that. Is the debate in a good place? Um, I would say not. Uh, it's not in a good uh, place, Colin. Um, in terms of the, the, in my view, the serious work that that has been um, produced um, to date, 
most, I think the, the vast majority of that evidence that's gone through peer review um, sort of points to very um, substantial differences in terms of income levels uh, and, uh, and productivity levels. Uh, north and south, uh, and, and very serious differences in terms of levels of educational attainment, poverty rates, um, early school leaving, etc. Now, while these are not necessarily about uh, the debate the on constitutional change, they, they are major sort of inputs into that argument in terms of, you know, where, uh, where, is, where is better off. Uh, and I think while, um, I suppose, People like Adele and I and John have 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 been trying to engage in that uh, in terms of a serious uh, and rigorous um, approach. Uh, I think some of the arguments that are coming um, in terms of countering that are, are, are simply not not serious. Um, and, and I think that, to be honest, uh, the the issue of living standards and differences in living standards to me, uh, the, the data just looks so so clear cut um, uh, that that it's very. Difficult to argue anything other than than income levels and and, and welfare generally across a wide range of dimensions are better in the republic, uh, and the the argument against that is just simply to to try and dismiss um, uh, the, the sort of the evidence that has been produced through the peer review system um, without through anecdote uh, and without any particular rigor. Uh, and I think people that are engaging in this argument by simply trying to say, well, the Republic is, is simply, you know, it, it's it's a mirage economy and and all of this higher welfare is just an apparition due to the national accounting framework uh, or that, that uh, you know, obviously we know the NHS is, is vastly superior uh, to the health system in the Republic without actually going and doing the, 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 the groundwork in terms of producing serious metrics and analysis uh, is is a clear weakness uh, in the debate. And I think if people ultimately uh, want to support the uh, pro-union uh, argument uh, further down the line, uh, they're going to have to really step up uh, uh, much more than, than, than they're currently uh, doing. I think as time goes on through the work that uh, the SRI is doing, that John is doing, that will be done through the Shared Island Unit, much more information um, will be uh, generated, uh, not necessarily on the issue of constitutional change, but that information that will feed into the constitutional debate if and when a border poll uh, arises. Uh, so I think um, that um, for, for, for those that want to uh, adopt a, a pro-union uh, stance. I think they, they really need to, to do uh, much more uh, in that sense, if we're going to have a, you know, a balanced debate, because clearly there is this process that is ongoing in terms of evidence gathering, information gathering and analysis that, that is not going to stop. And by simply putting your head in the sand and trying to dismiss that uh, as in some way illegitimate or not rigorous enough, uh, just won't cut the mustard further down the line, I think. Thanks, Seamus. Uh, Adele, do you think the debate's in a good place? Um, I think I'd actually agree with, with everything that Seamus just said there, but maybe just to add uh, a, a couple of things. I suppose some of the absolutely key questions in this debate are around what would an all-island approach to education be? What would that look like? Um, same thing for, for health, industrial policy, tax, welfare systems. I mean, these are things that affect our everyday lives. And these are the really sort of, I suppose, the key kind of economic things that need to be teased out and that voters would need and, and would want to be in, in, informed on. 
Um, and and as, as, as John has already mentioned, really very little is known about how Northern Ireland and the Republic actually compare in, in a lot of different ways and, and what might be driving differences between the two uh, uh, regions. There's just not a lot of comparative research. I mean, it's starting to happen and, and the work is getting out there. Seamus mentioned we're doing research for the Shared Island Unit, like hopefully that will all be, there's four reports hopefully that will be published this year. There's the, the Aaron's project. So the, the, the work is starting um, and, and it's a case of, of, of getting it peer reviewed and, and, and getting it out there. So I think the, the debate is, is starting to grow um, in, uh, and especially in, in, in the past few years. Yes, Carl, I suppose I'd add little to that apart from just is that lack of data is crucial. Uh, it, it's, it's also not that unusual internationally that people throw their face against evidence even as it starts to emerge. I mean, there's a, been a big debate in political science over the years where there's a certain sort of political science assumes voters spend a couple of months looking through all the party manifestos, decide which party is best for them, and then they vote for the party that's in their own best interests that you know offers the tax cuts that suit them, the public policies that suits their stage in life, whether older, younger, children, whatever else. There's compelling evidence the voters do the opposite. They have a gut instinct of which party they support for ideological or family reasons or whatever. And then if that party tells them taxation should go up or down by 2%, they sort of, well, that's the party I support and that's therefore probably the right tax policy. Um, because people have short lives and they're not as interested in politics as we are, might be. So uh, they take shortcuts. Uh, and so therefore, people with a strong commitment to the union, simply asserting that living standards are stronger in the North is in some ways a natural first response. That's what the comparative evidence would suggest. But the problem, as Seamus says, for pro-union people is they don't represent 51% of the population in Northern Ireland anymore. And the 20% in the middle certainly doesn't have that good instinct. They do want to know what rigorous peer-reviewed challenge research is telling them. Um, and that's it. And, and people sort of often as well, I mean, I think probably in the South, most people their experience with the NHS has probably been working in London or wherever, and they don't realise the NHS in Northern Ireland is a very different beast altogether. And so you know, just family, even in the North of England, uh, my wife's from Liverpool, you know, people in the South just don't understand you could be waiting five to 10 days to see a GP. Uh, you know, in either a lot of areas in Northern Ireland and most of the north of England. Um, and likewise, people in Northern Ireland assume everybody pays for everything in the health service in the south, and it's all pretty rubbish. And so you know, they don't understand you can see a GP mostly today, you want to see one, and that 40% of the population don't pay their GP, it's covered by the medical card system. And that some health outcomes are stronger in the south, like cancer care, I think is, is generally, but the evidence is, is not as rigorous as it needs to be and other bits of the health system in the South are weak and not good. And the NHS has a better track record. So Sash, people, the gaps, people assume the opposite of what might be the evidence might suggest. And that's why I think bringing that evidence to bear is really important because people do naturally have their own prejudices to begin with. And sometimes they'd be reaffirmed, but often they need to be challenged. Thank you. That leads seamlessly really on to our next question, was, which was around whether we have sufficient reliable data about the island in the here and now and, and actually whether it was possible to make useful comparisons and the sense and the flavour of some of the responses there was that, 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 that we're perhaps not in the space to do that. But I suppose the question from that would be, well, what more do you think we need to do now? You know, what will we need to be doing in order to be able to make useful comparisons 
and to generate the sort of data that that that, that you're referring to uh, there. Maybe Adele, would you like to? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know whether there's a, there's a real need for for more cooperation, I'd say, between the, the statistical authorities uh, to produce more. Uh, meaningful or not necessarily meaningful, but more comparable and more timely statistics. John's already touched on this. Very often the data that you have north and south may be defined differently, so you're not actually comparing like with like. Um, I know in the in the work that, that Seamus and I have done, um, you're asking about how useful it is for the for the here and now. Very often the, the, the data that we are relying on um, for most of our work the, the, the most up-to-date data we have is for 2018, and so obviously it's a few years past that. Some of the data that we're using are, are for years before beforehand, and again, it's an area where you can be criticised because people can turn around and say, well, it's 2021 now, but we are using the most uh, up-to-date data that, that, that we have. So I think there's, there's a, a role for kind of more cooperation between the statistical agencies, um, and that, that probably also covers, you know, other areas like it, like in health and that, and, and, and across kind of government departments and, and so on, to produce data in a comparable way um, and, and that it's timely. Um, you know, it's, I think that's it's really important for if we're going to start building the evidence base for, for issues such as such as a border poll, but also more generally, I think, to inform policymakers and, and the business community and, and, and public debate on, on North South issues. So. I, I think you know that there's lots of areas for cooperation, and um, that that would include the, the the health area on on waiting lists, on health costs, and, and so on, and the area of housing, and uh, social welfare supports, um, and and it's it's about getting these things, like I said, on a comparable basis, so that, so that we are comparing like with like. Um, I, I think James and I had other things in the list around sort of. Uh, rates of, of child poverty, you know, all of these indicators that tell you something about how uh, uh, the economy and society is performing. That's great. Uh, John, Seamus, anything you'd like to add to, to that? Yeah, I think um, that's, that getting alignment on um, on the data is, is really a long-run uh, process um, and it, it would take a high level of cooperation and, and in some ways a structural change in the relationship between the um, the statistical agencies north and south and there may be barriers to that and obvious political barriers to that happening um i think you know where we are at the moment is is in the game of just trying to make the best use of the data um that we have um i think also in terms of um the the data gaps in terms of doing the comparative analysis a major flaw uh in in the framework and the analysis sort of um set up is that there doesn't seem to be a macroeconomic model for the north um, and, uh, and one that that sort of talks to um, the macroeconomic framework in the in the republic uh, and, and that's something that needs to be established and built because if we're going to talk about um, for example um, changes in the framework within the, the north that will allow higher levels of productivity say in terms of spending on infrastructure we need to know what that happens what what effects that has on the north's economy but also what the spillover effects are to the Republic and the general increase uh, in welfare. So I think that there is a big problem in terms of, of comparable data. We probably will be able to struggle on 
in terms of getting those questions, in terms of welfare and and, and health and, and social care and the economy. But I think the, the longer term objective has to be the building of a, of a macroeconomic framework uh, that models uh, the impact of policy changes in the North and the South and captures the, 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 the all-island dimension uh, of any changes in, within, particularly within uh, that are targeted towards increasing those those productivity levels in, in the North. Thanks, Seamus. John, any thoughts on what more we might need to know? You know, I think that sort of captures it well there. It's it's in some ways making the data we have as, as comparable as possible and as up-to-date as possible. Uh, but also, as Seamus added, there's just new data that's not really being collected at all at the moment. I mean, in terms of where the conversation, you know, why has FDI been at such low levels and the wage levels associated? I mean, one leaked confidential report suggested, you know, that almost half of Invest in Northern Ireland's board of companies were producing wages below average, you know, which is sort of, in some ways, what's the point of high-tech investment if actually you're dragging down your average wages rather than dragging them up? It sort of almost defeats purpose unless the alternative is is no work at all. Um, so there is, you know, so why is that the case? You know, why when companies in Dublin have, you know, hundreds and at times pre-COVID thousands of empty jobs and they're paying a small fortune for rent, um, you know, why is it so unattractive to go two miles up the road um, where rents and wages are cheaper and where, I mean, with some investments for certain, uh, it would seem to solve their problems. And yet the political situation is such that no major company has made that decision. You know, none of the LinkedIn's, the uh, Facebook's and others that sort of drive the new docs economy in Dublin have really sought to put a significant base uh, north of the border, despite the closeness and you would think the obvious. So what is it in terms of future economy um, that would, because you know, all of us would probably, if there, there is some sort of subvention deficit in Northern Ireland economy, it's only a question of the scale. And everybody knows there's improvements needed to public services, both north and south of the border. Um, and there isn't an endless pot of money. So how do you drive the economy um, so the services the people would like to be delivering through public services can be afforded? Um, and, and that's the sort of the new data we need, as well as the comparative material we certainly need right now. Thank you. That's, that's great. I'm just going to want to pick up something, Seamus. You, you said, mentioned something earlier around you felt that the evidence was fairly clear-cut in terms of performance, economic performance, north and south, both parts of the island. Obviously, that's not a universally uh, sh shared view, but I, I want to push that on a bit and ask you if you could maybe explain why that's the case. You know, having reached that conclusion yourself in terms of comparative performance, you know, why does the north uh, perform less well? That's a, that's a, 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 a great question, Colin. I mean, um, I'm not sure I have all the, any of the answers or all of the answers or some of the answers, but I, I'll give it a shot. Um, basically, at the time of partition, as we know, the, the, the North was uh, uh, much wealthier than, 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 than the Republic of the 26 counties at that stage in terms of much, any of the, the metrics that are available. It was highly industrialized, you know, it had a lot of shipbuilding and textiles, uh, whereas the southern economy uh, was was more agriculturally based. Um, and up until around the, the, the 1930s, uh, the, the Northern Ireland economy was a net contributor to the, um, to the UK Treasury. Um, so there, there, 
but since then it has been uh, in a state of, of subsidy uh, to one uh, level or another. Um, so it's there is a perception that the North economy really was damaged as a result of the troubles, but the, really the, the problems were there uh, long before the troubles. Uh, Maura Sheehan and I, I wrote a paper published in 1998 where we looked at um, regional income levels with it between uh, with the North, the North and, and GB regions. Uh, so in the in the um, late 1960s and early 70s, uh, the North Northern Ireland was already at the bottom of the uh, productivity level in terms of per capita GDP compared to to UK uh, regions. Uh, so it's clear that. Uh, while the troubles made uh, the economic situation worse and, and, and um, widened the structural gaps that had already existed uh, between uh, the, the North and, and British regions, uh, those, those, um, those gaps were pre-existed uh, the troubles. So the, why has that happened? Um, it, it's, not, it's not clear. Uh, there are lots of arguments that um, UK economic policy, as we know, is, has generally been focused on um, the southern and eastern regions, and that's where most of their growth is generated. Um, there has been a north-south divide that's been well established for for, for many decades, and uh, the Northern Ireland economy would would be part of that. And most of the arguments around that is is basically that economic policy and UK economic policy is uh, southern uh, is centralised around the southern and eastern and, and and London region, and there hasn't been enough effort within that framework. Uh, to generate or keep income levels within the more peripheral regions uh, up where, where maybe they should be. Um, throughout the 70s and early 80s, there were these impacts. Uh, there was regional policy uh, and there was you know, grant assistance to, to the lower income regions. So the analysis that Maura Sheehan and I did, we, we basically concluded that um, throughout that, that period of the 1970s and early 80s, that regional policy had the um, effect of stopping the gap between the low the low income and the high income regions uh, within that UK framework from widening, but it didn't uh, have any impact in terms of narrowing the gap. And basically since the the you know the late 1980s, we don't have an effective policy regime within that UK framework. Um, and I think there that the supports to the poorer regions are just um, not there in terms of the investment. We see the gaps in educational uh, attainment, we see you know a lack of support for industrial policy. So I think all of those reasons, uh, particularly from the 1970s onwards, are, are a good explanation as to why the northern economy has been um, performing poorly. You add on top of that the impact of the troubles. I think more research needs to be done to really understand you know, what was the story between, say, the, the late 1930s and, and the early 1970s that um, initiated that decline. But I would argue uh, that the economic model that the Stormont regime um, pursued uh, is, was was non-standard, to, to put it kindly. Um, we know that there were uh, it was divisive uh, in a number of ways, and that there was high levels of uh, discrimination and exclusion in terms of employment uh, and housing, uh, particularly for from nationalists and Catholics in the north. And I'd say you know that has to be a factor in explaining those that lack of growth. Uh, in the post-World War II period up to the, the early 1970s. That's great. I just want to press on a bit now to, um, there's a the conversation around uh, potential constitutional change as envisaged in the agreement is, you know, filled quite interestingly with the language of planning and preparing and getting ready for the referendums that, that are anticipated. I just wonder from your own perspective, you know, what we would need to know from an economic 
perspective or socioeconomic perspective in order to have a fully informed conversation, you know, with that emphasis on planning and preparing. But, you know, if we were to head towards these concurrent referendums happening, what would we need to know in order for you yourself to be satisfied that we were having a fully economically or socioeconomically informed conversation? A slightly unfair question, right? But I'm just be intrigued as to what what your thoughts are on that. John, maybe start. We have a we have a good example very recently in the Scottish 2014 uh, referendum. Um, you know, again, it didn't quite come out of the blue, but it was you know it came relatively quickly compared to the slow pace of political change in Scotland through the 70s and 80s, where the percentage support for referendum and for independence you know pretty consistently stuck around a third, and then all of a sudden it took a jump up to the to the mid 40s and late 40s and. Uh, even though the referendum was defeated, sort of stayed there. The Scottish government published a preparatory document, 900 pages long, a summary sent to every house in Scotland, freely available online. Any person who requested it got sent the whole 900 pages for their bedtime reading. And if you would look, and I think it's fair to say most of the exit polling and recent analysis, the reason the referendum was defeated was not because people didn't feel Scottish enough or they felt more English or British. Uh, the reason it got in the you know high 40s rather than in the low 50s is because that middle 10% were unconvinced that they had enough information about economic policy in order investment pensions these sort of issues rather than the high politics it was those issues which a lot of work had been put into preparing for but even then it wasn't enough and we're certainly some years away from the level of information that scottish voters were given uh, before they were asked to vote um, and they're probably still a bit away from answering those questions uh, if a referendum is to be held again after the next uh, Scottish Parliament elections. So I think people want to know in advance, you know, we can't tell the future for them, but they want to know what are the issues that would be likely to sway the sort of macroeconomic framework uh, that Seamus talked about. Um, you know, why has productivity have been low and wage levels low in the north. Why has, um, I mean, James rightly points to that long decline from the 30s through to the 70s, and uh, troubles just one part of that, not cause of it, but probably even more striking is um, if you look at the literature that was published in the late 1990s, uh, I don't particularly like the word peace dividend, it's sort of a bit of an awkward phrase, I think, but it did try to capture the assumption that coming out of armed conflict uh, and with a consensual peace agreement uh, in place, that there would also be heightened levels of inward investment and more attention paid to education levels and, and infrastructure and, and those issues. And that really hasn't happened at all. It's really been, you know, not no positive change, but really very, very limited over what is now a fairly extended period. Um, so I think people want to have some sense of why that is the case. Why has uh, the experience inside the UK, even since 1998, been, been really quite poor by international standards uh, in those key elements of, of health, education, living standards and the broader economy. Uh, and what might be the impact of an all-island economy without the sort of political and constitutional barriers that any regulatory framework requires? I mean, any two countries sharing a land border there's a barrier there. They don't have quite the same economy on the two sides of the border. Um, and because of the politics and security situation on the island of Ireland, that was a fairly serious border, even after the single market. 
Uh, and there is work to be done there. I mean, uh, point to some of the issues earlier, you know, why, you know, a better understanding of why, you know, major uh, companies involved in FDI in Europe do not see Northern Ireland as attractive. I mean, even a relatively straightforward piece of research talking about decision makers and some of those companies, you know, we might guess why they haven't made that decision. But, you know, to my understanding, there hasn't been a rigorous piece of work actually asking them, you know, did it ever enter your head? Uh, you know, is Northern Ireland so off the agenda, you didn't ever actually consider it? It just wasn't there at all. Your image is still of a place of conflict that no one in the right mind would build a multi-billion facility. Or, or did it get on the short list? And, and was it down to, you know, education levels or productivity trends? You know, understanding that would be really, even tourism hasn't, you know, you're talking about a, about a seven to one differential uh, north and south of the border. So even though people have come to the island of Ireland with money in their pocket and they wander around between Dublin and Kerry and Galway and even Donegal, but very, very few of them will head from Donegal to Derry to Belfast. Yeah, some do, clearly, um, but really at quite low levels, given they're already on the island of Ireland. You know, it's not asking them to be. So those sort of potentially positive economic developments, issues around regional balance has also been discussed, but we haven't, you know, does Belfast offer a, a counter to, to the dominance of Dublin in the island economy? Uh, a dominance is now becoming problematic by international standards in terms of the sheer scale. And people can see in their daily lives in terms of pre-COVID commuting levels, housing prices, um, having a, an economic centre on the island, whether it's Belfast or Northwest or Cork or Galway, that would counter Dublin a bit better, I think would be good for the overall economy and for a sustainable development. So it's those sort of issues that are researchable. I mean, these are, we're not asking people to look in their crystal balls. There are international models where we can at least say, here is some level of probability that these things are either possible or unlikely um, and give people some, some sense of what they're being asked uh, to consider around economic factors of constitutional change. Adele, Seamus, in terms of what we would need to know to have a fully informed referendum, referendums, Adele, what do you think? Um, I, I, I would, I would, I would agree with everything I think that John has said. Uh, I do think some of the key questions are going to be around what, like, what would an all-island approach to health look like? What does you know, what does that mean on the ground? Same for education, tax, welfare, uh, industrial policy, uh, FDI, and so on. Um, and and then it's also about you know. How long would a transition take um, and, and what policies are you going to implement during that transition phase that might help improve productivity levels in, in, in Northern Ireland? Um, you know, because the, the length of any transition period and how successful any, any, any policies that are implemented during it will be important. Um, so I think you know, it's 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 to keep the research going as well. Um, you know, John has listed and, and Seamus and I have described lots of lots of things that, that we need to know more about. And so that it's getting that information, you know, peer reviewed, getting that research peer reviewed, and, and I think getting that uh, information out there that you can have a more informed um uh, uh, conversation. Seamus, any thoughts? Yeah, just to add, I think that um you know, uh, uh, John's talked about the, the Scottish referendum. I think that the Scotland's future documentation is a minimum standard benchmark that we want to um, 
that we have, want to establish in the run-up uh, to any border poll, where there is, a, you know, a thoroughly uh, researched, well put together, uh, validated document that informs uh, what a new Ireland would look like across uh, a range of dimensions in terms, you know, of obviously economic policy, industrial policy, social welfare, the health system, education, and that's a big, big. Uh, task, you know, it's not going to be done overnight, but that's a minimum standard. And I think that's essential both to inform um, voters of what uh, a new constitutional framework would look like, but I think it's also important to keep the debate honest, because if you do not have that body of information, that body of, of, of data and analysis, then what you revert to is a Brexit scenario where people just, you know, you revert to the, the approach of slogans uh, on the side of a bus. And that's what we need to avoid at all costs. And that's why, the, you know, there is um, a job of work to be done. I think all the comparative analysis that's been done through the Aaron's project, um, through the Shared Island work and ongoing work will, 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 will serve to populate that document. Um, but that, that is a document that needs to be produced um, as, as a bare minimum. And you would argue that it would be the job uh, of the Irish government uh, of the day or of any day to ensure that that, uh, that, that work uh, begins and it should begin now. Thanks, Seamus. Thank, thanks, everyone. I suppose we can't have an economics uh, discussion on this debate without mentioning, it's been mentioned a bit already, but the subvention <laughs> debate, which tends to dominate some of the conversations around this. And John, I, I want to turn to you because you've recently, you know, intervened in this debate in a, you know, quite a high profile way, really, in terms of challenging some myths around this. Um, you've challenged, you know, the views about the scale and scope. And I suppose the question would be, how much do you think uh, the subvention will in reality uh, be an impediment to any man managed transition if that were to happen? on the island and also just to press that on about how do you think negotiations around this event you know and that debate should be managed i suppose i've been quite pleased with the reaction to subvention uh, article and some pieces in, in the irish times and elsewhere to brought it to a broader sort of non-technical audience i mean just the usual uh attempts to accuse me of being delusional and, and just wishing it away but i think for people who just had assumed the figure represented an actual bag of cash that somebody from the UK Treasury came over and paid for the health service with a big 10 billion bag well, of maybe, money. Mate, John, do you want to explain to our listeners, you know, the subvention itself? What do we mean? Yeah. What, what do we mean when we say subvention? Yeah. So when the UK Office of National Statistics, yeah. they produce a regional uh, sort of set of statistics um, and they produce a, effectively a deficit between the taxation raised in Northern Ireland and the money spent in Northern Ireland, but crucially Northern Ireland's share of UK-wide expenditure. And that's reasonable from their point of view. The UK has a certain amount of expenditure and it divvies it up pro more or less per capita. There's a few adjustments that have more or less per capita. Um, and so some of that's relatively clear cut. If you live and work in Northern Ireland, and that's the only place you earn money, the only place you pay tax, then how much tax you contribute to Northern Ireland is relatively easily calculated. Uh, but if you're Tesco and you pay one VAT bill and it's from your office in London, I think their office is in London anyway, then that would come up in the UK national statistics as VAT earned in London. And it's in, nobody's willing to spend the money to figure out how much VAT Tesco raised in Sunderland compared to Edinburgh, compared to Belfast. They don't care 
they have a centralized accounting system. They have one chief financial officer and they submit their monthly accounts. So it's actually challenging. And the other bit that's challenging is of the expenditure that's not spent in Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland share, how much of that will be relevant the day after United Ireland? Uh, and some of the figures are brought to bear in that article were, you know, self-evidently would not be relevant. Um, so the Republic of Ireland's defence budget at the moment reached 1 billion euros for the first time in history in the last fiscal year. Um, Northern Ireland's share of defence expenditure is 1.3 billion sterling. Um, well, United Ireland might decide to do whatever it wants to do on defence expenditure. I think it's beyond credibility that they would more than double defence expenditure the morning after United Ireland. A lot of that cost is to do with the Trident nuclear missiles programme, the, the much larger cost of, of UK uh, military adventurism, if I can say that, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, which would simply wouldn't be relevant. Even if we decided to have a slightly bigger navy or a slightly bigger army or introduce an air force for the first time, there's no way that level of cost would be there. Likewise, the cost of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office is a, at a scale beyond anything a new United Ireland would be likely. So some of those figures, I think, are relatively clear-cut. They would not be relevant. But there are some big figures that would be negotiated. And that negotiation, in re realistically, can only take place after the referendum had been held, because it wouldn't be in the UK government's interests to get into the detail if they were in, even maybe not as a government, but as individuals uh, campaigning for a, a no vote in the Northern Ireland referendum. Uh, and the two big figures there are there's about one and a half to two billion of debt repayments. Um, you know, legally, the Irish government, the future Irish government doesn't owe a penny of that because uh, the UK government signs those uh, debt agreements with international bankers or whoever else, and they expect London to repay them. But of course, we get into the nitty gritty of negotiations of who'll pay for what. You know, the Irish government could say, well, we'll pay a bit of your debt if that's really a big issue for you and, and you cover pensions and you give us a grant of so much per year. So it's not, but it, legally it's not the Irish government's debt. And so in worst case scenario, where there's very truculent and difficult uh, negotiations after uh, a referendum created in Ireland, the Irish government's trump card is, well, actually, we don't owe this money. Like, we can only make a contribution to it if it's in our interest to do so. Um, and the big flip side of that is pensions. Uh, most public sector pensions are not in a pension fund. Um, you know, we have, as we do in the Republic of Ireland, it's a pay-as-you-go system where people pay a pension contribution to see it go out of their salary every month. Sometimes people assume it's gone into an investment some fund somewhere like their private pension, but in reality, it just goes into uh, that year's public expenditure effectively as a form of taxation. So there would be no pension fund to, to follow those people uh, the, the morning after United Ireland. So the UK government could say, sorry, you're gone. Um, that's almost three and a half billion a year. Um, my argument in the article is not that that's impossible they would do that, but that is extraordinarily unlikely. You know, would any British government, for example, stop paying pensions to military veterans, retired RUC officers, retired PSNI officers the morning after United Ireland? I think politically that's unlikely. And once you start down that road, well, if you're paying RUC officers, then what about doctors and nurses? Or teachers. Um, and once you start down the road, where do you then stop in that regard? And the other big practical question is, um, many people in the Republic of Ireland receive a UK pension because they've worked some years in the UK system. It's a really efficient and good part of the two public sectors. Uh, the, the two systems work it out to your advantage. They work it out seamlessly. 
um, your pension arrives, they will actually move your contributions between the two countries. To, if you're short one in one country, they'll, they'll move it around to suit your purposes. And it lands in your bank account every month. Um, so if the British government walked away from the pension responsibilities, you'd end up in the, I think, undefendable situation where somebody in Dublin who'd worked in London all their life would get their pension every month. And somebody who'd worked for the Northern Ireland Civil Service or as a teacher would suddenly not receive their pension. Um, but if they moved to Spain, they would get it. Um, you know, so literally, does everybody move south of the Armagh Loud border to claim their pension? Or is some practical agreement reached? And I think, you know, while legally I accept, as some of my protectors claimed I didn't, I accept legally there is no pension fund. for There is for a small number, but mostly there isn't. But two governments sitting down, creating it in Ireland, there's no reason to believe the British government will be totally belligerent. They're going to be saving money from their point of view anyway. You know, everyone accepts there is a real subvention of some sort. And therefore, the UK Treasury know the morning after United Ireland, they're starting to save serious amounts of money. And I think in those circumstances, they would reach agreement. And the thing about the pensions, if they agreed to just pay a subvention to Northern Ireland as a goodwill gesture or a reparations, very hard to stop that once you've agreed to start paying it. Thing about pensions is, unfortunately, we're all going to reach a stage where we're no longer claiming our pension. And so a treasury, from their point of view, know if they agree to pay pensions, that figure will get smaller every year and will eventually hit zero at some stage in the future. And so it's a very defined liability. It will restore, you know, keep good relations with the Americans and others internationally. They make them look good internationally. It's a commitment that people assume they've made a pension contribution. Even if legally they haven't, everybody thinks at the end of the month, they've paid towards their pension. And I would think there'd be outrage if there was some sense that somebody had run away with your money and you were now getting it back as a pension cost. Um, even if legally that is you know, what the UK courts would say. I think this is a political and diplomatic decision. It won't end up in the courts. It'll end up in a negotiation between the Department of Finance of a new United Ireland and UK Treasury. And it's my belief that that would be a reasonable discussion. And if you take those figures around, that leaves in around 2.8 billion euros. That is a genuine deficit that somebody would have to meet or raise taxes or cut expenditure. That's an achievable amount. That's about 5% economic growth to achieve that um, as a one-off sort of a non-reversible growth. Uh, so I think that's doable. But that then has to be mixed in with well, what would be the costs or savings of an all-Ireland health system? What would be, you know, if you increase benefit levels in the north to the levels in the south, that would be a huge cost. Uh, but I think everyone's hope is that in United Ireland, 27% of the population in Northern Ireland would not be on benefits. So those that remain on benefits or pensions would get a better deal. But the hope is that other people will be earning a sufficient income that they don't require a top-up of benefits as well. So it's those are the real issues. But the subvention for me has been a barrier because it seemed so big and it was unexplained to most people. And that's been one of the sort of pleasing bits about the article is people who weren't belligerent, who were actually just short of information, um, were convinced by the argument. They know there's going to be some subvention to be made up, but it's now at a level where that looks doable. And therefore, let's get on and talk about what are the real issues that Adele has mentioned about industrial policy, taxation, public services. In some ways, that's, that's the real debate. The subvention has been a big red herring in some respect. An expensive red herring, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's not the biggest issue we face um, in the underlying macroeconomy is the big issue. Because um, if that was 
No? You know, if the average economy, economic performance in Northern Ireland was equivalent to the South, there wouldn't be a subvention to worry about. If wage levels were similar to the South, taxation would be up and there wouldn't be a subvention. But that's really where I think the debate over the next number of years needs to be, as, as we bring more evidence to bear, is, is what would allow an economic performance that allows a self-sustaining level of public services that, that doesn't require Dublin simply become the replacement of London as the subvention, but rather Northern Ireland as part of an all-Ireland economy is actually a region that's doing well for itself. Thank you, John. That, that's great. It's really striking how much of the recent debate and the work that, that you've all been doing has been in the realm of myth-busting, if you like, of, of bringing information and evidence into the public sphere, I think, which is really helping to make people sort of think again and reflect on their existing views. But Adele and Seamus, have you any further thoughts on the subvention debate that you'd like to add? Well, I mean, I, yeah. I, I just reiterate what, what John says. I yeah. think it's a red herring. I yeah. think it's it's overestimated. And I think it either there is a subsidy there, but it is a product of low productivity in the north. Uh, and so the, it, for a debate in terms of a new constitutional framework, a new economic framework should be actually looking at, you know, asking the questions, you know, uh, we, there is good education, there is good infrastructure, there's ports, there's airports, there's universities. Why is performance uh, so poor? How can we can we um, can we change that? But I think that that is not to say that there won't be uh, a, a cost and substantial costs to be met in terms of of creating a new uh, economic um, an all Ireland economy. Because uh, for whatever reasons, um, partition has uh, created um, substantial gaps. Uh, in in terms of performance, uh, there's substantial gaps there in terms of education levels. There's issues uh, around poverty. There's there's issues now and um, gaps. I think uh, in terms of infrastructure, all of those will have to be addressed in terms of the of the north. Uh, a driving factor of those gaps is that the spending arrangements for the for the north is basically defined by the Barnett formula, which is calculated on, on spending needs of of uh, English regions. Obviously, there have been gaps that have been created with, in terms of services and key services that drive productivity in the north that predate the troubles. They have been made worse as a result of the troubles, and the funding arrangements haven't been there to close it. To to plug those gaps, so there needs, there will be, and the need for substantial investments going forward. Uh, but I, I think that that the debate around uh, the subvention is, is just a, a real red herring. That's great. Well, you'll be glad to hear we're heading into the final, the last lab, final few questions here in terms of of this uh, podcast, and and you're all very aware of the work of the Shared Island Unit, the Shared Island initiatives that are happening at the moment, and. I'm just wondering, Adele, maybe if to ask you a question around, you know, the work that the Irish government is doing and perhaps what more it should be doing in terms of these discussions, or is it already doing enough? Um, well, I, I think the, the Shared Island Initiative is, is, is very much to be welcomed. Um, it has some, some really good uh, objectives around working in, in partnership with the executive and, and the UK government to address shared challenges on the island and um, they're, they're looking at trying to deepen and, and develop the all-island economy and there's uh, a, a substantial investment fund has been put in place to to to, to, to get that going um, and and then they're they're also doing work around having uh, trying to, to, to foster a, a more inclusive discussion 
and, and, and commissioning research to, to support the building of, of consensus around a shared future. So I would say it, it's very much framed in, in the context of, of a shared future rather than uh, anything to, to, to do with it with, with the border poll. Um, but at least um, but one of the concerns, and I suppose this is one of the reasons why Seamus and I started doing some of this work, is we had this, uh, th there was this sort of sense in which you could be bounced into a border poll very quickly. And no one had really thought about it in turn on the, if you like, on the on the economic side. Um, and so I think that it's great that this sort of research has has started. And um, you know, um, a lot of irrespective of, of whether or not you have a border poll, if 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 there are ways to deepen and develop the all island economy in a in a way that that improves living standards north and south, or that improves employment prospects and, and so on. Um, and, and if it comes up with ways for, where, um, you know, there, there could be an all-island approach to, to FDI or, or, or that kind of thing that could actually help raise living standards on the island, then, you know, I think from, from, from that point of view, I think it, 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 it has to be welcomed. Um, as a researcher, Seamus mentioned, we are doing research with them. So, I mean, I think it is great. There's so little comparative research done uh, north-south. And so... In, in a lot of the work that we've done, that Seamus and I have done, we've pointed out gaps or differences. But we haven't really been able to dig beneath the hood to explain, well, why is that gap there? And I think, you know, in, in that sense, it will all, you know, give us, give us a better uh, uh, understanding. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the sorry, on the, on the Shared Island Initiative, I'm, I, I, I think, you know, as, as time goes on um, and, and the research comes out and hopefully it will it will help inform debates north and south and as well I think it will give a way for the executive and the UK government and the Irish government to, to work together at the you know at the moment obviously political tensions around Brexit and, and, and everything have have uh, you know have have probably mean that these relationships have, have suffered somewhat recently so it, it's it's a good idea if we can get people around the table to sort of talk about shared uh, challenges. That's great. Maybe we want to pick up on the, the Brexit uh, uh, Brexit impact uh, now and just think about, obviously Brexit has had an impact on, on these discussions. Uh, obviously the concerns about the economic impact in, in Northern Ireland. But I'm also interested in the sense in which those arguing for possible constitutional change on, on, on the island placed a lot of emphasis on the economic potential of a reunified island within the European Union. You know, that automatic return to the European Union option that is there that has sort of changed the nature of that debate somewhat. But just, and, and with also really a focus on the potential, the, the economic potential of constitutional change, you know, for Northern Ireland in particular. I just wonder how credible uh, you feel those arguments are and, and what might the gains be uh, of constitutional change economically for the island? Maybe start with you, Seamus. Yeah, I think uh, that Brexit is, is, a, is a major factor in this uh, debate. I'm, I'm pretty sure had the Brexit referendum not happened and, and went the way it it had. I'm not sure that we would be actually sitting having this uh, podcast at the moment, uh, because obviously the majority of, of people in the north uh, voted to remain in the EU, and the you know and and uh, the, they, they've been they've been taken out of it. So um, 
the European Irish reunification is obviously one solution um, to that sort of disenfr being disenfranchised in that way, as it um, as it all offers a, a, a pathway uh, back to um, the to, to EU membership. Um, and I think that there is the economic consequences of Brexit have yet to be known. Yes, we have the protocol, but the protocol only covers. Um, goods. Um, so the, the Northern Ireland is outside of the EU for all effective reasons, for or except, you know, for all purposes in terms of services trade. We have things coming down the road in terms of the supports for the common agricultural policy, or which are currently being replaced by the UK government. They will run, run out at some stage and that will have major implications for the agricultural sector. Uh, there's issues around uh, the, the free movement of, of travel is, is no longer here and, and in terms of moving to a points-based immigration system is going to have major consequences uh, for the labour market. Um, so I think that um, the, the economic impacts of Brexit, while they'll be mitigated by some extent to the protocol, they're, they're, they're going to be quite serious uh, and they're, they're not known uh, at the moment, but I think they will become known um, over the course of time. So at the moment, I think that the EU debate is more emotional for people in terms of, you know, um, the Irish unification is seen as a way of undoing the, you know, uh, the way that, that many people think they have been politically disenfranchised. But I think as we move further down the road and the economic consequences of Brexit become um, apparent uh, for operators in the north, I think that that, that economic argument around and the economic gains uh, that can be achieved through uh, re-entry to the EU through Irish reunification is going to become much more of a feature of the debate. John, any thoughts? Yes, I mean, probably most of my work before I did a subvention article has been on the impacts uh, of Brexit in Northern Ireland. I think there's just two key ones. I think one, which the British government, I think to this day still hasn't understood, is how it has changed the international perspective on the Northern Ireland question and unification. Because as long as the UK were inside the European Union, then the European Union was never going to take a position on partition or constitutional change in Ireland, because it had two member states um, with different points of view, at least legally and constitutionally. And so therefore, you can see during the peace process, the EU's role, apart from through peace funds, was very, very limited compared to the Americans or even the South Africans at a much greater distance, or the Finns, you know, played more active roles in the controversial issues around decommissioning and negotiations and talks. It was just politically impossible for the EU to do that. And I think, therefore, when both the May and Johnson governments were negotiating with the EU, they started with the perspective that Ireland was small and would get abandoned. The big boys would be negotiating a trade deal and, and you know, concerns about the island of Ireland were just not taken seriously. I mean, they weren't even mentioned. Apart, um, the common travel area was the only thing mentioned in May's first speech on the issues to be addressed. Um, the border just didn't feature in their thinking at all. Um, and you can see that. And the EU, I think, have been quite striking, not only in affirming that Northern Ireland would automatically join the European Union following the German, the East German president, um, but also just being much more assertive than the UK government assumed um, when it came to negotiations around the withdrawal agreement and the protocol. As Seamus says, the protocol helps then to switch to economics, which is the other big thing. And also COVID, I think, has also made it difficult. You know, even now, if the Fordists were to sit down and try and disentangle the impact of COVID and the impact of Brexit on economic issues over the past six months. We think we'd struggle to do so, even if we had a couple of months to dig into it, because it's all, it's entangled. People off work, uh, supply chain problems, 
it's, it's challenging to see, but hopefully COVID uh, will recede into our, our past and the not too distant futures. And the, the, the difficulties of Brexit, the end of the transitional agreements, some very difficult negotiations in the autumn, services entirely untouched now, which is inevitably going to be the, the, the potential growth area in the north. So I think those, you know, the, the economic consequences of Brexit for Northern Ireland are going to be much clearer in 12 months' time. And I suspect they'll be largely negative, notwithstanding the protocol. But of course, the political dialogue would be to blame the protocol on everything and to ignore the, the core issue of Brexit itself. And so it, not, that debate will not be easily cut through to bring some real evidence to bear. So it's crucial, even on that issue, it'll be high politics, people simply asserting the political preferences and blaming the protocol or blaming Brexit, depending on their starting point. Um, and so some key evidence as to how the impact of Brexit itself. And we have some to finish on this point. I mean, to go back to the point I was talking about earlier in terms of the why the island of Ireland has struggled to function as an economic unit, even when both jurisdictions were inside the European Union. FDI did saw it as two places, not one. I mean, there's no evidence that investors saw the island of Ireland as the relevant unit. They saw the Republic of Ireland as the relevant unit. Um, because there was different tax, regulatory systems, political uncertainty, that's going to be even more so now. And I think, unfortunately, it is going to make it much more challenging to address the underlying productivity and investment issues in Northern Ireland, because everything that was a problem until now will still exist mostly. And on top of that, from the point of view of international investors, there's also the issue of one bit of the islands inside the European Union, the other one is outside it, um, and the arrangements that are transitional are up for review every couple of years. So making a long-term investment in Northern Ireland while it's outside the European Union, I think it's, it's going to be a very hard sell uh, for those involved in, in, in that work and make the, make the economy potentially even weaker. Um, so making it all the more urgent to have some addressing issues that at the very least ameliorates those negative impacts. Um, but it will be very challenging. I think it'll be very challenging over the next couple of years. Thank you, John. Adele, Brexit? Um, I mean, there's there's... All, all the kind of economic evidence points to the fact that, that, that Brexit will have a negative impact on the UK over the long run. Um, any study that has a, a regional aspect to it will tell you that Northern Ireland is, is one of the, 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 the regions in the UK that, that could be hardest hit by um, Brexit. Um, just going back to, to something John was saying around uh, FDI, I mean, there, there's a lot of work that suggests that the, the UK will be worse off over, over the long run in terms of FDI, either companies leaving or companies deciding not to go because of the uncertainty around Brexit or, or lower um, access to, you know, not having full access to, to, to the EU market. And in that context, if, if we were to talk about a, a, a reunified Ireland or, or, or a united Ireland, I mean, at the moment, the, the Republic is, as, as John pointed out, very successful in terms of attracting FDI, uh, you know, for, for everything from, from our highly educated labour force, favourable corporate tax rate, limited barriers to, to trade investment and, you know, business friendly environment and, and, and so on. So in that sense, if, 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 the, if, the, if, the, if the North was to, uh, you know, uh, uh, again, uh, be part of the EU, um, and and if, if 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 policies were in place, that would help improve the North's productivity. That would actually address these structural issues that we've been talking about in terms of education and so on. Then the North could actually be 
in in a good place to to benefit from some of this FDI that probably won't go to the UK now or that may relocate from the UK. So at the moment, there's a sort of more anecdotal evidence about FDI being kind of diverted to to uh, the Republic. I, I you know, it, it's at this stage, it's more kind of anecdotal rather than than anything else. But if you were to get the policies in place to improve productivity and so on in Northern Ireland, there's no reason why Northern Ireland you couldn't market it as a as an all island approach and, and have an all island approach to to to, 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 to FBI. Um, so um, yeah, I think that's that that's just just a sort of a, a potential positive spin on 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 you know on on Brexit. Okay, just be before I ask you all to, to to sum up, just a question, a slightly provocative question to whoever wants to to, to take it. Um, how how would you respond to those who might suggest that this is a debate about ethno-national identity, ultimately, and that while economic arguments are important and significant, they will likely or they might have very little impact on people. Uh, in other words, you know, the people who will hold to their constitutional preferences about the future, let's say, of Northern Ireland, regardless of the economic consequences, question mark. In other words, unionists might say that they're happy to stay in the United Kingdom, even if it makes a unionism or the community worse, worse off, etc. So how would you respond to that sort of argument? And I'll just throw it on whoever wants to, 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 to chip in with a response. Maybe I'll start with that. Um, I mean, that's partly true, I think, Colin, in the sense that for some people, um, they would certainly bear a significant economic cost to achieve the objective of United Ireland. And I think if you could even put a figure on it for them, which we couldn't, um, I mean, there's some evidence that was the response of German voters. Um, they knew it was going to cost them a fortune uh, to sort of modernise the German economy. And there were, in some ways, they might never realise how expensive, but but they were willing to pay some cost. But I think there's, there's certainly, uh, within each community, our communities, I think there are some nationalist voters, if they were persuaded the economic cost uh, was going to be astronomical, uh, may well not you know, support United Ireland in a referendum, if, if that was their view. Um, and then there are an emerging uh, group, and there are clearly unionist voters who uh, won't. I'm trying to call as one of the leaders of the Orange Order when, uh, during the period of the Celtic Tiger, uh, when a reporter put it to them that, you know, the economy picking up in the South, one of the big arguments against unification was Rome rule and poverty. Uh, and these seem to be ameliorating in the South. And they said they were loyal to the crown, not the half crown. And in some ways, it didn't matter what the economy was doing in the South. And that would be true, of course, for some unionist voters. But there are, but not, I think, for 51% of voters. Um, there are more than 51% of voters who do want to hear the evidence. And it'll be a mix of their cultural backgrounds, their, their political ideology. Um, and the economic and social policies that are there. So yes, not for every voter, but, but for a substantial body. And we can see there's an appetite for information, an appetite for evidence. People, there's a big chunk of voters who don't have fixed views um, and, and they want to know. And that's where I think that this research is really socially important, politically important at this time. Thank you, that's great. Adele, Seamus, like to, no pressure to respond to that, but. <laughs> yeah. 
I, 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 I sort of, you know, I, I agree, would uh, agree with everything that John said. I think there are there's there's about there there are unionists and, and there are nationalists who are going to vote in a particular way, uh, no matter what. But there is no nationalist majority, there is no unionist majority, and there will be this uh, middle ground who will be looking at the economic issues. Uh, and it's not only about e economics; it's about wider uh, issues of welfare. You know, in terms of the, you know the, the EU question, the, you know the, 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 the regaining the freedom to work and, and study within the EU. There's issues around, you know, how do we get a better education and health and welfare system? There's issues around, you know, rights as well. I mean, you know, the Ireland is now seen as a as, a, as an outward uh, looking um, um, liberal democracy, and 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 obviously the gaps are, are there with respect to equal marriage and uh, reproductive rights. And there's also, I think, you know, we have to call it out that Brexit has increased um, a perception of a rise of English nationalism uh, within uh, the UK political framework, and, and and a lot of people are are turned off by that, and and they want to look at an alternative uh, framework that 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 moves them away from from that um, from that uh, you know that that, that system. Okay. Right. Well, thank you all very much. You'll be delighted to hear now I've reached the, the, my final question. And really just to, to end the, the, the podcast, I'd like you to share with the audience as, as a final thought this. If you had to emphasize uh, one thing that must happen next or should happen next, if we were really going to advance these discussions and priorities uh, that, that we've talked about in this podcast, what would that one thing uh, be? You know, what would you like to emphasize as a way just of concluding our discussion today? So I'm giving you a few seconds there to think about that, what you would like to emphasize, and maybe you start with Adele. What is the one takeaway from today, you think, to advance these discussions? I mean, I, I think uh, in, in some of the, the, the material that we've been talking about, we've been talking about Northern Ireland sort of poor, uh, uh, lower uh, productivity levels and that. Um, and, and I think one of the, the, the general point I'd like, you know, for people to take away is that th that position is not irreversible. Um, and once we understand that a bit better, um, I mean, we've put forward some of the arguments of what we think is driving that around lower levels of education and, and FDI and, and so on. And if we can pin down some of those factors, there's no reason why that situation cannot be improved and that there wouldn't be a better economic um, uh, uh, future for Northern Ireland. And that would also then feed into the, the kind of discussion around subvention and, and everything. If you improve your tax base and, and maybe become less reliant on, on some expenditures and that. It also links into your uh, arguments that, that, that John was making around um, subventions. So I suppose for me, the key thing is that, the, you know, a situation of low productivity is not irreversible. And I think that's what we need to be looking at. And that's what policy needs to be um, uh, addressing over the short term. Thank you, Adele. Seamus? I think I'll just go back to our initial um, motivation for beginning this work that a border poll uh, is, is completely, the timing of a border poll is completely unpredictable. Uh, and we need to recognize that, that the probability of that has increased, that it will take place on a 50 plus one um, uh, basis. People need to stop 
trying to renegotiate the Good Friday Agreement. It's there, it's sat in stone, and it is the responsibility of governments and any government of the day in terms of, of an Irish government to begin to set out a vision for what a new constitutional framework would, would look like. Uh, and I think that that needs to begin in a serious and earnest way uh, to take the, again, the Scotland's future um, documentation as a minimum benchmark of what that would look like. Great, thank you, Seamus. John? I suppose for me, I think it's not widely known that the Good Friday Agreement does not give the Irish government any input into the decision on the timing of a border poll. They were committed to have one concurrently with the British government, but actually it's the British government who will decide the time. And while you might hope they would consult with the Irish government, they're not legally obliged to do so or do so. So, so it could come quicker than any Irish government anticipates, and it could come suddenly if it suited British interests, British state interests, particularly perhaps with some of the current uh, senior figures in the Conservative Party. So therefore, we have to contingency plan and we have to prepare. And so if I was to look at one thing, I think it would be that an all-party Oireachtas committee produces a report based on a couple of years of reliable peer-reviewed evidence that is not only the benchmark of the Scottish uh, future report, but in fact, learns some of the lessons and there and goes beyond it. And I think that serious, you know, all-party, because governments can change, Oireachtas-based, so it has authority. It obviously, you know, there'll be negotiations to come after a referendum, setting out a real benchmark document of what an all-island health, education, industrial system could look like and how it would make sense from the point of view of an offering to put before the people north and south in the referendum. Thank you, John. Well, I could I could really talk to all all of you uh, all, all week really about, about this subject. I just want to end really by, by thanking you all for your ongoing work, which is really, I think, informing the public debate in an evidence-based way around some of these questions, dealing with some of the myths and helping to advance the discussion. So just want to thank you all for that. I want to thank you for engaging today and thank you for your really, really insightful contributions and contribution to uh, this podcast. Very much hope that the conversation uh, will continue, no doubt it will. And just to end by thanking you all again. Thank you all very much. Please subscribe and rate this podcast. That will also help others find it. The podcast can be listened to on the Queen's University Belfast website and also on iTunes and Spotify.